When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. As I was just talking about with Carol Masser, the big story remains geopolitics as we await remarks from President Joe Biden speaking later this hour at Emory University. But first, let's start with Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who met with Chinese officials and members of the Communist Party Earlier yesterday in Anchorage, Alaska, this was, of course, the first high-level talks between the United States and China, and it descended immediately into bickering and arguments with each side sharply criticizing the other over human rights, trade, and international alliances. Take a listen to the sound on the relationship from Secretary of State Blinken. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. That's why they're not merely internal matters and why we feel an obligation uh, to raise these issues uh, here today. Taking it one step further, Karen Pierce, the U.K. ambassador to the United States, spoke exclusively with my colleague David Weston earlier today on Bloomberg Television, and she noted that vaccine nationalism is wrong. She also discussed the U.S.-U.K. trade talks and both countries' relationships with China. Take a listen to the sound on that. They're very important areas around security, stability, trade, uh, cyber, IP theft and human rights. All of these need talking about. Uh, but it's not all about competition. If you want to tackle the really big issues in the world around health, uh, around climate, uh, then we need China working cooperatively with us. Meanwhile, the president of the United States also spoke today. He visited the CDC headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. The scientists there were praising the White House support for their research in the fight against COVID-19. And President Biden told the researchers, in addition uh, to others, that they have the support of the American people. Here's the sound on the shots. We owe you a gigantic debt of gratitude. And we will for a long, long, long time. 
The point is, the public is thankful to you because it's about science. I want to welcome to the program Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. Uh, as we come to a conclusion without question, uh, Jeannie, of what felt like an incredibly geopolitical week uh, and one that unfortunately uh, the back shadow were those anti-Asian attacks that captured the nation's attention and grief as well. To your point, we really saw the administration turn its focus around the world this week, and it was extraordinary to watch it sort of unfold. And I heard you talking to Carol and raising the issue of what's going to happen now in Europe. And I think this is one of the big takeaways for me with the back and forth with China is not only are they feeling emboldened in terms of their ability and how they have, you know, are are equal in stature to the United States in many ways and you could see that, you know, just viscerally feel that in that exchange. But also, as we think about Europe, you know, great questions as to whether Joe Biden is going to be able to use our allies in Europe to confront Beijing because Beijing has made inroads. And there was a fascinating story about this as it pertains to Germany in The New York Times, I believe, not that mm-hmm. long ago. And so those, to me, are real challenges now that we so, sort of saw viscerally played out in those fascinating exchanges. With, with, with Blinken and his counterpart. Rick, it seems like the Brits are aligned with us on how to deal with China, but there are so many open-ended questions uh, with Germany, with the Italians, with France, uh, in terms of what direction they are going to move in. Yeah, Kevin, I think we reap what we sow. Uh, for the last four years under the Trump administration, we were reminded by that administration that our traditional European allies weren't that important, right? And they got scolded quite often. Uh, now we look back and we think, wow, we should have been building this team even stronger rather than isolating them. Uh, we have a lot of proof points we have to establish. We have to establish proof points with China. As Jeannie said, you know, there was a lot of um, positioning uh, in this Anchorage meeting that uh, – that is trying to get the U.S. in a different place, and it's been in for over a decade with China. And we have to we have to create those proof points with European allies and and our Asian allies. Uh, these are these are now uh, the strength we have is our friends around the world, and 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 that's going to take a lot of time and effort. Well, let's follow up on that, Rick, because especially in terms of the broader movement of European nations, uh, which which what how is the better question how. Can President Biden, can Secretary Blinken, um, how can they get the Germans to to move back toward the direction of the broader coalition of the United States and Europe? Well, I think there are some fundamental building blocks. uh, And number one is security. Uh, We we saw the Trump administration launch a uh, aggressive campaign in Europe against uh, the Chinese companies like Huawei trying to infiltrate and, and use their technology to uh, control 5G in Europe. Uh, and, 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 and we won some and we lost some. But we didn't make a case, I think, that was successful enough that these are national security issues. These are not economic issues. Donald Trump liked to put everything through the filter of economics with China. And, and we missed the biggest selling point that we have, which is uh, it's national security. And with national security comes all these other causes that the British ambassador was talking about, cyber attacks, all these countries have been uh, subject to cyber attacks from China, uh, and there's no coordinated response. Uh, everyone's kind of left on their own. The U.S. has a unique position to be able to amass uh, uh, volume with these allies to be able to ensure that these kinds of 
IP theft, cyber attacks, uh, things like that don't happen in the future. Well, and, and, and I would add to the list uh, of concerns with regards to Huawei and 5G technology, uh, uh, South America as well, and the inroads that the, uh, that China has built into that. You know, I, I'll never forget, Jeannie, when I asked Rick a couple of months ago um, after January 6th about whether or not uh, the domestic issues – to, for lack of a better word, in every sense of the phrase, were undermining the United States' position to make a broader case um, to the rest of the world, but particularly to adversaries. You know, we we all recall and remember and acknowledge the unrest uh, that happened throughout the year at various points um, throughout recent months. Um, of course, we're all horrified, horrified. By the anti-Asian attacks that have that have also occurred uh, recently, unfortunately. Um, but Jeannie, the word Rick used was that it, the U.S. needs to humble itself to practice humility, and that it can still get grounded in its um, measuredness and in its principles through humility. I, I was really struck by that, Jeannie, because I think that's the difference here when the Communist Party counterparts were uh, lecturing for. The uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, but to his point, Rick's point, I think that humility is going to have to be really on display, not necessarily in dealing with the Chinese, but in dealing with America's allies, right? It it, it is, and and you know, to to Rick's point, what what has really been very striking to me is the similarities between the responses of China. And also Russia in the last week to the administration. And and let's not forget in terms of, you know, sort of raising issues. We heard China push back on, you know, you can't talk about our human rights record with the record that you have got. Um, but let's not forget, we also heard Donald Trump make a very, very similar case during his administration and as he ran for office. So it is going to be hard for us to walk that back, I think. And, you know, I think as we think about China, a couple things we should we should remember. Number one, if Biden wants to isolate Beijing on trade and other issues, it's going to take pulling pulling our allies towards us. And the difficulty is China has had time to do a very good job of making these allies dependent on them. And that makes Biden's approach to that much more difficult. We mentioned Germany. Let's look over towards Asia, places like Pakistan and the Silk Road. The investments China has made in infrastructure are tremendous. And you get states dependent on you much, much harder for Biden than to isolate Beijing when their relationships are strong. And and that's what I got a real visceral sense of yesterday, that they are feeling very emboldened about their place on the world stage at this point. Yeah, but Jeannie, I think that one of the things that's an interesting contrast between what you're saying about China's outward appearance and what they want to broadcast to the world and what Kevin was talking about, which is our inward look to try and solve our problems, our, mm. our humility. And, and, and our, our guest later on in the program, Keith Kroc, uh, actually wrote a piece that actually very well articulates this, that in Vietnam, when when we went through that period, we actually looked inward and said, okay, we have to fix what's wrong here. And years later, we dial it back and we say, China not willing to address these issues. 
internally inside China. But we've moved on successfully to be able to repair the damages done during the Vietnam era in places like Vietnam itself, who, who see us as their great protector against China. Why? Because we change. We focused on our vulnerabilities. We try to improve ourselves. Our democratic experiment isn't over. China will not recognize any domestic issues they have, and ultimately that will gnaw away at them. Rick Davis is so much more poetic than I'll ever be, Jeannie. I mean, seriously. I'm just thinking of my dad saying, we're an Irish-Italian Catholic family. We talk it out, we hash it out, and then we move on. But let's take a listen to a perfect Perfect example of this, that, and, and, and kidding aside, because my colleague Scarlett Fu uh, spoke with uh, California Congressman Ted Lieu earlier today. He is um, a Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, and he had scheduled a hearing weeks ago, uh, follow, and, and, and it took place the same week as the mass shooting in Atlanta, where a white gunman killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women. And Congressman Ted Lieu uh, and I don't know, I, 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 this, this is such a powerful soundbite. So take a listen to this sound on the conversation that he had with my colleague, Quick Take anchor Scarlett Fu. Here it is. You know, I serve my active duty in the United States military to defend the rights of anyone to say whatever they want, even if it's stupid or even if it's racist. I'm just pleading with my Republican legislators to please stop using these phrases because we know that it's adding fuel to the fire of hatred against the Asian American community. You know, there's obviously a political tint in, in that soundbite, Jeannie, uh, but I, I, without question, this week, uh, that was such a dominant part of every corner of the nation's capital and every crevice in the halls of Congress. It was. And, and, you know, and I agree with you on Rick's how poetic Rick is. I'm not nearly as poetic. We love Rick Davis. No, but- <laughs> Professor Zeno, you, you wrote the book on democracy, quite literally. But, Go ahead. But, you know, I think it's, it's stunning to hear that, you know, there were members of Congress, for instance, who were asking Kem- Kevin McCarthy to please not use particular language, which I won't repeat, because it has such a devastating impact on a community. Yeah. And that wasn't mm. abided by, similarly to President Trump. And that wasn't abided by. So, you know, it it has been, you know, a horrifying week in terms of what happened, obviously, in Georgia, as we await the president potentially maybe making some remarks. By the same token, it has been really important that for many people I have talked to said this is amongst the first times recently when this conversation about treatment of Asian Americans has gotten the attention that it really deserves. And so that, you know, is sort of a a bright spot on an otherwise very, very difficult week following a horrific year. Top thrill two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from zero to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach zero Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. It's just been the list of, of, of issues between the U.S. and China. It's, it's grown longer by the day, it seems. And even, it, it, you know, Apple with China and, and privacy issues, and they're addressing China's app workaround. That was in the headlines this week. And it's just, I don't even know where they start in terms of how, how do you start, Rick Davis, t- Davis, take us behind the scenes in terms of prioritizing so many of these issues. 
Yeah, I think uh, the clip you played, uh, Kevin, earlier with uh, U.S. Ambassador, or the British ambassador to the U.S., uh, Karen Pierce, uh, I think I thought summed it up really well. I mean, there are a couple of issues that we think we can work together on. Um, health, uh, COVID, is one of them that we have to improve on. Right, uh, the, the world's health depends upon our leadership and China's to come to grips with some of these kind of pandemic issues, and and climate, which is uh, an existential issue for the world also. And 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 there's a lot that you can unpack in those two areas where we have complete. And total co-op, if we had complete and total cooperation uh, between the U.S. and China, the world would be a completely different place. Um, so that's a great positive starting point. But you're right. The list of uh, transgressions, uh, uh, violations of uh, international codes of conduct, um, things that we have uh, spent uh, uh, the entire history of the United States pointing out and trying to correct uh, – are 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 really overwhelming, and this administration's ability to parse through those and find where we can make progress, either on the economic front or the human rights front or the security front, uh, is going to be very complex. I would say I'm not shocked that we started this week uh, in Alaska, where that we had the first uh, meeting between uh, uh, the parties uh, in a very tense period because there, it's not a good news story. And I think that's the first step to realize this isn't going to be easy. We're going to have to have friends at the table with us. And we, it, it's not a bilateral relationship. China is a member of the world community, and we need the world to step up along alongside of our leadership. I read somewhere in one of them, the Hill Rags, what are the Axios or uh, what's the other one, Politico, uh, Punchbowl. Um, I, they quoted one of the, the people that said uh, China has – China feels that the, they have the wind at their back and that the, the floodgates are open. I guess quickly I'd ask the both of you before we reset uh, whether or not that's a, a miscalculation. Jeannie, I'll start with you. I, I, and the word that I keep reading is the same, in, that they feel emboldened. And I had yeah. that sense yesterday. Um, you know, it, it, is it a miscalculation? Um, I, I am not sure. I think that it's going to depend on how the Biden administration is able to move forward. But I think our discussion here is really important because, again, when you have economically sort of uh, made countries dependent on you, it are, are, is, are raising human rights violations going to be enough to break that? You know, how can we step into that now, I think, is a big question. China feels like they have secured support there. And as we continue to spend and increase our debt, that is a large part of where this has come to. Is, it, is the wind of China's back, Rick? You know, look, I mean, appearances are deceiving. Um, yep. they, they have economic and security uh, superiority in some regions of the world, but they have a cancer, a lack of freedom within their own country that is going to eat away at their progress over time. You can't repress your people. You can't deny them freedoms. You can't, uh, you know, uh, lock up every dissenter in in Hong Kong. You can't you can't put uh, ethnic minorities like the Eager Weigers uh, into prisons by the millions. Uh, all those things are going to stop China ultimately from you know, reaching the potential that, that frankly, they they yearn to be. It's uh, all right. Let's let's uh, let's reset here. I'm Kevin Cerilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We are awaiting remarks from President Joe Biden, who will uh, speak. We are told later this hour. Uh, 
at Emory University, and uh, we will bring you those remarks as we dip into them. I'm accompanied by my colleagues, Bloomberg Politics contributors, uh, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. I, I, I want to reset and, and talk about COVID-19 in particular, because while the United States has achieved uh, the goal of, of having 100 million vaccines within the Biden administration, the new administration's first 100 days in office. And we've been clear on this program about the credit that goes around to both administrations as well as uh, to uh, the scientists and researchers who work tirelessly to make that happen. Paris, France, and other parts of Europe are now just hours away from a new lockdown going into effect as a third wave of COVID-19 moves through Europe, and there is a lockdown for 21 million French citizens that starts at 7 p.m. Eastern time tonight and will be in place for at least a month. Uh, our, our colleague on the ground, an indefatigable reporter, he's been on this program multiple times throughout the last year, Ross Cullen. He is the Paris bureau chief for Feature Story News, and he joins us now on the line from Paris right now. Ross, so... I remember interviewing you a year ago when these lockdowns first started, and uh, it was mortifying to hear your accounts as we in America hadn't yet reached any of the restrictions. So I I say this respectfully, but are we going to have a third lockdown here? Kevin, just dialing it back to 2020, I remember that. I was in Italy speaking to you, yep. the first European country to go into a national lockdown. And to look from 2020 in March, fast forwarding to where we are now and France going back into this regional lockdown, uh, other countries as well suffering from this third wave in Europe. I guess the fear in the US is that there could be something uh, similar coming. Of course, the numbers, when you base it on population, are much larger in the, in the US. But France really suffering now and we are uh, going in at midnight tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, into another lockdown here in Paris. So is it is it now when we say lockdown, as we all have learned, is it a lockdown or is it a lockdown? <laughs> I don't even I don't even meaning is it how restricted? What are the restrictions? That was a that was a not articulate question, and I apologize. Well, the president Emmanuel Macron actually said this evening that lockdown is the wrong word. He said that for this particular measure, we should be using breaking measures, deceleration measures. That's how he would like to characterize, because we will be able to go outside when lockdown is in in place. Uh, There won't be a time limit on that, but there will still be a remnant of the previous uh, lockdown, something that you guys didn't have over there, which is this filling in of the government form. Every time you want to leave your house just to buy a pint of milk, uh, just to go to the drugstore um, for some painkillers, you need to fill in a government form proving why you are leaving your house. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The American in me is like jumping out right now. Hold on. Ross Cullen, Paris Bureau Chief for Feature Story News. Wait, so every time someone leaves the house, they have to fill out a form? Where do they give the form to? Where is the form? In the first lockdown, the form was actually printed in several newspapers, particularly for the elderly generation uh, who might be getting access in their form uh, that way. There are millions of people, including me, who will access this form using the COVID-19 tracking app on your phone. Uh, but you do need to fill it in if you are going to be leaving your house uh, because if the police stop you and you haven't got the right documentation, you do face a $160 fine. 
Ross, this is Jeannie Shanzano. Very good to talk to you. And I am just stunned, I think, as, as Kevin was um, listening about how this works. Um, are you hearing anything from the people on the ground? Are they, you know, at all concerned about their liberties and freedoms in the midst of this kind of, um, you know, understanding that there are health reasons for doing this? Do you hear any kind of pushback on a, the civil libertarian front? I was speaking to people today, uh, Jeannie, on the Champs-Élysées, one of the most famous uh, boulevards in Paris, where there were long lines of people outside clothes stores because they're going to shut tomorrow, so people trying to make their last purchases. And, Jeannie, I would say they were resigned. They almost knew this was coming. It's not a surprise. We've been through this before. They know what it entails. For example, filling in the form, as I said, uh, and being back inside by 7 p.m., that's when the curfew starts. You need to be at home by 7 p.m. Uh, so they, it's not a surprise. And for a lot of people, it is annoying to have to go through this. But unfortunately, they saw it coming. They saw the numbers. They saw the pressure on hospitals that we are suffering here in France. And it was inevitable. Ross, this is Rick Davis. I, I want to uh, maybe uh, look into sort of cause and effect a little bit. Uh, and we've all seen the reporting on AstraZeneca in Europe and whether or not countries are embracing the uh, the, the uh, COVID vaccine uh, made by that organization. And, and I know France has limited uh, to people 55 and older uh, access to that vaccine. But in other countries where we see success, uh, it's basically, you know, get a vaccine in the arms as quick as you can to everybody you can. So is there a sense that they're going to rethink their strategy related to the vaccination front? Rick, this is a heavily centralized bureaucratic country in France. Uh, something like a national vaccination program was always going to be a slow rollout, always going to be a logistical nightmare uh, for the paperwork and the pen pushers. But the government does seem to have finally realized it needs to up the ante. The prime minister got a, a shot this afternoon of AstraZeneca trying to prove to the public to have confidence wow. in that in that drug makers vaccine and that they do need to be uh, rolling out to more uh, sectors of the demographic population, trying to increase the number of people who are taking the vaccine, because there is a lot of reluctance. We do have a, quite a strong anti-vaccine movement here in France. Let me follow up on this point, this AstraZeneca point. Who do the, who do the locals blame it, it, and, and break it down for us? Is it, is it a politically, uh, uh, polarizing issue over there like it is in the United States? Who Who's getting the blame or is there blame? Is there any palpable uh, anger about the third wave and having to go into new restrictions? Well, I'll tell you where the anger is directed and it is the management by the government of the vaccination program. Wow. The government actually gets pretty high marks in public surveys for the economic support, for the packages of financial aid, for furlough, for waiving the taxes for, for, for certain sectors. But where it is scoring low marks, guys, is on the vaccination program and the management of that, the mixed messaging, the changing messaging. We heard President Macron saying that this vaccine might, might only be quasi-effective in older age groups. But then we are also hearing today the French Authority for Health saying that the AstraZeneca vaccine is for only the over 55, so potentially only for the older age groups. So this mixed messaging and this miscontrol, the logistical problems that we've seen with this slow roll of the vaccination program is really impacting the government. So let me follow up, Jeannie, just quickly, just on, on that, from that perspective. Do they feel, do the Europeans feel that they are faring better than the United States? 
or do they feel that the United States had a better vaccination rollout? Or are they not thinking about it, to be honest, because they've got to fill out a form if they want to go get milk? (laughs) I mean, they do do see the numbers that the U.S., the U.K., Israel, even countries like Chile um, are ahead in the vaccination programs. Yeah. Uh, But when it comes to it, you're right. There are are the basic liberties of will I be able to go for a walk in a park with a friend? Have I remembered to fill in my form? Is there a police checkpoint up ahead? Uh, I mean, it, it really is a, a kind of different way of enforcing COVID-19 restrictions from what we've seen in the, U- in the U.S. And, and Ross, you mentioned that there is a fairly substantial anti-vaxxer movement over there, as there is here. And here, what we're hearing, at least at this point, as you know, based on the polling, is that that seems to be um, there seems to be a lot of, you know, Trump voters, for instance, particularly men who are, um, you know, uh, against the vaccine or, or reluctant to take the vaccine at this point. Obviously, that data is still coming out. But do you get a sense there where this is coming from, this anti-vaxxer movement? And if there's any sort of political element there as well? Well, we do see a lot of crossover, uh, Jeannie, in the broader themes of uh lack of confidence in the government, lack of confidence in the overall Washington or the overall picture of, of, of Paris. So when it comes to the anti-vaxxer movement, it is strong in, in France, and I would say that the problem comes uh, from what we saw with the spike boom in 2009. Yeah. ordered millions of vaccines that then started back and didn't end up using. Uh, this anti-vaxxer movement is right. in French. And uh, and really, it's causing a bit of a problem. That's why we're still Prime Minister having a All right, Ross Cullen. Ross Cullen, we're going to have to leave it there. Ross Cullen, we're going to have to leave it there. He is the Paris Bureau Chief for Feature Story News, and he joins us on the line from overseas in Paris, France, uh, just hours away again before a new. Uh, lockdown is going to affect uh, as a third wave of COVID-19 moves through Europe. That AstraZeneca uh, scenario has just rocked, not just obviously markets, but everyday life. And, and that was just a fascinating dispatch, Rick, from, from Paris. I mean, we were, we were talking about it in the Bloomberg IB chat uh, internally here, but I mean, Broadcasting from the nation's capital, particularly since January sixth, I I know how much this city was rocked, uh, and still in many ways remains rocked. But hearing that dispatch, wow, it's like another world. Yeah, uh, it is, and uh, and, but it's not isolated. I mean, uh, I have a lot of friends who live and work in Israel, and this is Mm. how Israel handed the first wave of the uh, of the virus attack: is they locked everybody down. You had to have permission to go shopping. Uh, You couldn't uh, go outside uh, except for certain days, depending upon your last name and how it's spelled. I mean, it was very tense. We did not see that level of lockdown here. We complained about the lockdown we had, but it was nothing compared to, to, to some of these other countries like Israel. And ultimately, um, uh, they were able to prevail, uh, but it didn't stop a second wave from happening, right? And it, it, as soon as they loosened up the restrictions, another wave came. And so just because France is uh, ex- uh, putting on these very tough restrictions, it's how they come out of it is what's important, not how they went into it. And and if they don't come out of it with a lot of people vaccinated between now and, and when they loosen these restrictions up, they risk another wave 
of uh, attack by the virus, especially these variants that are moving their way through Europe so regressively. Well, Jeannie, I mean, it's just another world from Texas, another world from Florida, from Maryland, as all of the drip, drip, drip of reopenings continue to happen. And I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, please don't let the United States get a third wave. Well, that that is, I, I think I, I messaged Rick this a few days ago as, <laughs> as we're hearing, and this is terrible, you know, that because we were, what, two or three weeks behind all these waves, and I, I said, oh, no, because it seemed like we were getting such good news, and obviously the United States has, you know, still does, to your point, as a result of the, the tremendous work on the mm-hmm. vaccines by both administrations, but I am just, you know, really stunned by how this lockdown is going forward, and, you know, to Rick's point, If they don't, you know, people will, I think, increasingly get frustrated if they don't see results at the end of that. I think one of the things about Israel is that they have done a very good job. Um, So maybe people see, okay, we will give up some of these freedoms because in return we'll get some, you know, we we, we will, the the benefits will be there. But, you know, in Europe it's been a very, very different story. And I'm fascinated that we haven't seen her, at least over here, as much pushback from people as we have in places like you mentioned texas and elsewhere Uh, and yes and and especially you know i think the most politicized issue here on the on the covid front has been schools um and to some extent you could tie immigration to covid19 i think as as well but let's reset here Uh, i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television and for bloomberg radio i'm accompanied by my colleagues bloomberg politics contributors uh genie shanzano as well as rick davis we are awaiting remarks from uh from president biden uh, at emory university uh, on what has been just a fascinating geopolitical uh geopolitical week uh, on the U.S. China front, as well as on the uh, U.S. Uh, Russia front, but we're we're going to be checking in uh, soon uh, with Keith Kroc. He is the former uh, Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs um, uh, in the Trump administration. He received unanimous approval. He was voted for confirmation by uh, all Democrats and all Republicans uh, in the uh, administration, and largely was an apolitical figure. Uh, of course, he has deep experience in the private sector as well. He's the former CEO of DocuSign. But he has this new Newsweek column out that Rick Davis uh, alluded to uh, earlier in the program, uh, headlined, The Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide now. You can stop it. And he wrote it with Ellie Kohanim. Um, and it's uh, in the in the column uh, he goes on to – he writes, quote, In January, the world marked International Holocaust Remembrance Day. On this annual day of commemoration, the United Nations urged every country to honor the six million Jewish victims of Nazi genocide by developing programs to prevent future genocides. In a UN ceremony, American and European leaders joined Holocaust survivors in conveying the urgent responsibility to remember the Holocaust by defending the truth now more than ever. For the last 76 years, we have committed to never again – permit genocide to happen on our watch. Um, But it's happening right now, and he lays out what's happening in the Xinjiang province. Uh, Rick, do you think we're going to start – do you think that this will be an apolitical issue that Elizabeth Warren and Rand Paul are going to be united on in the months ahead? 
Yeah, uh, I think any effort to try and find accommodation with China, and we've talked about different ways through, you know, sort of health policy and climate where some of the positives may come out. We've heard a lot about the negatives this week. Um, um, but there are those like uh, 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 Senators Warren and Paul who have a very inward-looking foreign policy attitude, right? And their attitude would be, hey, these people are committing genocide, and, uh, and we want to roll up the carpets. We don't want to deal with China. We shouldn't do things with them that would empower them. Uh, and so I, I think it's going to be a mixed bag when it comes to selling this. But I would say they represent a minority of opinion on Capitol Hill related to China. Uh, I think there you, you see this as becoming a very bipartisan issue. Uh, we always look for things we can unify Republicans and Democrats around, and China's bad behavior is one of them. Uh, just before we bring Keith Crock into this conversation, I want to hit a red headline that crossed the Bloomberg terminal just moments ago. The U.S. weighs global benchmark on climate impact for Wall Street. Again, a red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. The U.S. weighs global benchmark on climate impact for Wall Street. The Biden administration is considering ways to push the global finance industry into consistently accounting for carbon dioxide emissions and green investments, according to people familiar with the matter, no doubt. Uh, Senator Kevin Kramer and Congressman Andy Barr, two Republicans who have introduced counter legislation earlier this week on that front, are going to try to stop it. Let's welcome to the program once again the former Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs, Keith Kroc, who again received bipartisan confirmation, and he is the author of this new uh, this new op-ed in Newsweek, a headline, The Chinese Communist Party is Committing Genocide Now, You Can Stop It. Uh, Keith, it's great to have you back on the program. I appreciate the time. Uh, are you con- what, what can the United States do to stop this massacre from happening? Well, you know, there's a lot that the United States can do, Kevin. And, you know, this is punishable genocide as defined by the United Nations Convention on Prevention and Punishment uh, of Genocide. And I think it's really important um, that we do that. That was one of the things we outlined in, in the Newsweek article uh, in honor of uh, honoring the memory of the Holocaust uh, survivors. And, you know, the first thing is the, the government's done a lot, right? Uh, both administrations, uh, Secretary Blinken confirmed, President Biden confirmed, uh, genocide is happening right now. And, and what we go on and we talk about is the different organizations uh, that are a- actually missing from speaking out about it. And I'm talking about the biggest asset managers in the United States. We're talking about the ESG community, which is environment, social, and governance standards that 15 years ago it was, you know, it was $17 billion of funds. Now it's $17 trillion of funds. We're talking about the World Economic Forum. We're talking about the International Olympic Committee. Nobody's stepping up uh, because, as Speaker Pelosi talks about it, in terms of commercial interest, that basically means a conflict of interest. So the thesis of, of, of the piece, and I think really is the key, is if it is the piece, it's up to me. It's up to the, it's up to all citizens, and and that is to you know probably the most important way to, to make a difference is with your pocketbook, because the emptying the cash register can be heard loud and clear um, in Xinjiang, and you know that was one of the things that we talked about 
if you are, uh, you know, you have a pen, you have a pension fund, uh, mutual fund, ETFs, you give to your university in terms of endowments uh, or philanthropic foundations. All those mm-hmm. uh, uh, have, you know, have invested in Chinese companies. Hey, Keith, and this is. I think that's one of the things you, you know, you want to ask your financial advisor. Say, look, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that anymore. I think that's the biggest difference, Kevin, that the average citizen could do. Right. And Keith, this is Rick Davis. Thanks for being on the program. It's very timely with all the events taking place in in Anchorage this week. And and I wanted to uh, go back on that issue with you a little bit because we saw the success of um, of of South Africa's apartheid bans uh, with uh, investment firms uh, pulling their money out of uh, companies that are doing business with the South African government. We, We we see this. Uh, uh, in many other forms, uh, is there a chance to form a disinvestment in China campaign? I mean, uh, you you mentioned some of the organizations that are critical to that, but uh, we live in a cancel culture, and I would think that uh, this is one of the ways people can participate, whether they're managing large pools of assets or, as you point out, have a four hundred one k that uh, that that might have investments in Chinese uh, companies. By the way, I think it's a beautiful analogy, and we looked at that as a matter of fact because that was obviously a very successful campaign. It made a big difference. And remember, started, remember and not it, not buying Cougarans, right? I mean, like, yeah, as if we yeah. all want to go out and buy gold. But that was something that I thought was very I, successful. I, I know, and and it started at, at at the university level, and then it spread. And I remember back then I was at General Motors. I had just started, and we had you know, big manufacturing facilities out of there. And we ended up pulling them back because of what the shareholders said. So it did make a difference. It, it is a, it's really a great analogy. So I think the question is, why hasn't that been done? Because this is genocide. And, you know, the question uh, asked is, you know, do people feel like China's too big to fail? Um, are people uh, conflicted? And and understand, you know, we've been silent for decades on this, and we've looked the other way. We don't want to make that same mistake that we made, you know, back in you know in Nazi Germany. Matter of fact, we financed them. I mean, we we sent our best bankers, lawyers, we fund them through the pension funds, and we all did it. And that's bipartisan too. But now we got to do something about it. And wh- when I was at the State Department run economic diplomacy. I sent a letter to all of the CEOs and, and their boards in the United States. I also did the same thing with all the university governing boards. And then I also sent one to all the leaders of civil society organizations to really, uh, first of all, make them aware and and ask for them to do it. Because, you know, I, I mean, my yes. roots are in Silicon Valley, and out here we say, Corporate responsibility is social responsibility. Well, this is a big one. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that makes it tough is, you know, either people are conflicted or they're afraid of, uh, they're afraid of China's retaliation. They're afraid that they'll be sanctioned just like I was. 
Right, right. And I want to ask you about that. But Jeannie, I know you have a question first. Go ahead. Yeah, Keith, it's great to talk to you. And the piece is is really, really an important piece for everybody to read. On that point, you you know, another thing that makes it tough for the Biden administration now to take this on is that we also need to work with with Beijing on other issues like climate and like health and so many other issues. So what is your uh, your what are your thoughts in terms of how to on the one hand take on this issue of human rights violations which is so critically important while at the same time still maintaining a an ability to work with them in other areas that we need to work with them on by the way it's a great question so number one don't let them do what they want to do and that is they want to link issues they want to link working together on the environment with us with hey you guys be quiet on Xinjiang. So don't let them link things. Well, you can't do that. Let me let me jump in here. You can't do that when half of the world's global supply of polysilicon comes from the Xinjiang province, which is the key metal to make solar panels, and is the same province where the Uyghur uh, human rights abuses are taking place. Right, Keith? By the way, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the polysilicon uh, plants, which are essential for solar panels and semiconductors, they own about 80 to 90 percent of that. And the vast majority is made in Xinjiang. They make it with slave labor, and they also make it with coal-fired plants. I mean, their biggest coal mines are there. So, And it takes a lot of energy. And so you can't let them link it. The other thing, too, is I think that we've all learned, and by the way, this is the most unifying bipartisan issue, is that the only way to deal with China is from a position of strength. So you have to... Uh, you have to challenge them. You have to compete with them. And you got to compete with them first before you can ever expect to get any cooperation because the mentality is a zero-sum mentality. They talk about win-win, but that's, but that's a hedge base. That's what we call where I come from or a grid base or whatever you want to call it. And they'll honor agreements as long as, um, it, as it suits their purpose. Now, let's think about uh, – uh, cooperate with them on the environment. I don't think you have a country more motivated in the world to uh, have clean energy than them. First of all, they have no oil. Uh, we, I mean, we're energy independent if you look at fossil fuels. So they would love to get off that. The second thing is they're the leaders in developing clean energy technology. That means more jobs. That means more dominant positions. By 2050, experts say that Seventy um, percent of the world's energy is going to come from solar. They own the solar business, so they're motivated. So what, you know, what are we going to say? They're going to do whatever they want to do, and 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 they might say, hey, you know, we want something for an exchange, but they were going to do it anyway. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Hey, Keith, I I wanted to get back to uh, this issue of uh, sort of how you define some of the the genocidal activity. And one question I had that I've not really quite understood is part of what this is all about is the fact that these these minorities are Muslim. 
And and what what what's happening is China is basically running a campaign of of persecution and genocide against yeah. all religious minorities. And yep. and so where is the Muslim community on this? I mean, we see mm. China doing a lot of business in the Middle East, you know, uh, Egypt, one of the largest Muslim communities in the world. Uh, you don't seem to see the outrage, uh, frankly, that you saw when uh, Muslim minorities were being uh, uh, targeted in the Balkans War, where the United States came to their defense there. Here we are sort of standing in a very singular position without the Muslim community really making as much noise as you would have thought. You know, uh, it's really astute of you, and you're exactly right. Um, you know, the, uh, in the fall, I traveled to 40 countries, and a lot of them in the Middle East, and we talked about this. Have you been really tested? Been... <laughs> <laughs> What's that? I wanted 40 countries. Have you been tested for COVID? I mean, that's a lot. Hey, I've been tested 80 times. We literally were tested every. We had to abort a mission once because I was signed a clean network agreement with three different prime ministers on the same day. The last one, the Bulgarian one, came down with it. And we we went to uh, Bahrain that night. We were flying to Saudi. We read it. I go, guys, we're aboard. We're not, we're not going, you know, to give the Saudis. Uh, uh, COVID, but anyway, uh, uh, you're absolutely right, and, and 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 I'll be honest with you, I really don't understand it. And the only thing that I can say is that these countries, even the Middle East countries, I mean, who who's going to be their biggest customer for oil? Was well, China, and 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 who has a record of retaliation and intimidation? I mean, they shut down countries like Norway, like South Korea. So this is where this is why American leadership is so key. And by the way, this is also why we formed the Clean Network Alliance of Democracies, where we were able to get sixty countries representing two thirds of the world's global GDP, two hundred telcos, and dozens of high tech clean companies, and we defeated Huawei. Well, like they were going to run the table a year ago. It's a winning formula, and it can be applied not only in all areas of technology and also clean energy and infrastructure, but I think also on human rights as well. I said this but earlier. Um, I said this earlier on uh, Bloomberg surveillance, and and I I was thinking about it more today. And I don't want to make I, I don't want to make this a punchline because it's actually really not. It's a horrific, horrific uh, comparison to draw. But I mentioned Hollywood. And celebrities and the fashion industry, uh, as well as the makeup industry, think hair extensions. I think Hollywood's going to be talking a lot about hair extensions in the months ahead, especially as more Democrats and Republicans uh, start speaking out against the horrific genocide that's happening uh, in the Xinjiang province, which also a massive export is cotton uh, from from that particular region in China as well. Keith Crocks with us. He's the former Undersecretary of State uh, for Economic Affairs. He received bipartisan confirmation uh, from his Senate uh, confirmation when he served uh, in the Trump administration. But Senator Ben Cardin, one of the leading Democratic voices uh, on foreign policy, praised his uh, confirmation and called him one of the most qualified individuals for the job. Uh, he is also uh, founder and CEO of DocuSign and a host of other uh, companies as well. We were talking in the in the IB chat. Uh, the um, 
about uh, some of the stories you have from your time on the road. One of the last trips you took was a trip to Taiwan. And I know that you and I have talked about this offline when the uh, Chinese flew military test flights as if to send some type of message. Now, we in the United States were focused on the domestic elections here. But that was a major, major international incident when it occurred. Just describe for us that what 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 happened uh, when you were when you were in Taiwan? Uh, you were the highest ranking U.S. official uh, traveling there, and then you see Communist Party military planes. What happened? Yeah, you're, you're right, Kevin. It, uh, he's the highest State Department official in 40 years. Um, I was reading uh, with 40 fighters and bombers flying over, uh, uh, you know, crossing crossing the line. Um, and uh, it was a big reaction by that. And, and the reason why I was going was to honor uh, President Lee. It was a memorial service. He, he had passed, and he's their father of democracy. In essence, he's their George Washington of, of Taiwan. Um, and, it, you know, and since then, things have just, it's really, uh, it's really amped up. And it's, it, it's a situation that is critical to our national security uh, for multiple reasons, not just from a military standpoint, but also from a high-tech standpoint because they're the leaders in manufacturing of semiconductors. And that was one of the big things we did is we, we, got, we did the biggest onshore in U.S. history with a $12 billion state-of-the-art 5-nanometer uh, uh, semiconductor plant from TSMC, who's the leader in the world. Um, and... And China China is obsessed with the semiconductor. So the objective of the game and what we did when I was over there, we set up an economic dialogue. We later signed an economic prosperity partnership in all different areas, from high tech to infrastructure manufacturing to uh, uh, economic empowerment of women, education, all that. And then we later signed a science and technology cooperation agreement with a goal of uh, getting to the point of doing a TIFA, which is the first step to a free trade agreement. And the reason why that's important is because that's a signal to our private sector, hey, this is a place to invest. And when the U.S. private sector invests, then the allies invest. And when the allies invest, then if something kinetically happens, uh, we, we need those allies. Um, and, it, you know, it's it, it, this is a really, really important uh, situation, and uh, you know, I think uh, the, the the Biden administration is doing a uh, really good job trying to balance uh, what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because China's got designs on that, and and you know, all you have to do is think of Hong Kong, and that's right. Be disaster. right. Right. Well, listen, Keith, I know you've been so generous with your time, and I want to thank you uh, for your time, especially coming on uh, on such an incredibly important week on geopolitics. Again, uh, that's Keith Kroc. He is the former Undersecretary of State uh, for Economic Affairs, uh, and he joined us uh, after the publication of that new Newsweek column, which you can read on Newsweek, and it's uh, about what's happening, the horrible situation uh, that's happening in in 
the Xinjiang province with the with the Uyghur Muslim minority group. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with me. We are now, according to a, a Biden aide, a little less than five minutes away from President Joe Biden's remarks uh, from Emory University, where we will uh, take those remarks. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is speaking now. Rick, I mean, you just hear it from Keith. And, and to hear him praise the Biden administration for the approach that they're taking, I think it bears repeating that this is a much more unified United States on geopolitics that has emerged over the last two years in terms of how to deal with China. No question. I think that uh, China policy prior to that period of time, Kevin, um, uh, was in a drift. Uh, the Obama administration really didn't confront China on serious issues of human rights and economic disparity. And, and, and the Trump administration took a little while to figure out whether they were for it or against it. But by the uh, end of the second year of his administration, they formulated this China response primarily focused on economics and the pushback in the marketplace there. But uh, the Biden administration is filling out the rest of that agenda, which we saw on firm display this week in Anchorage, Alaska, between our chief negotiators uh, between the U.S. and China. So uh, I think we are entering a brand new, uh, very distinctly different relationship with China. Uh, It's going to take an enormous amount of statecraft to uh, ensure that it is productive and doesn't turn into a shouting match. But uh, I do think the Biden administration has goals and objectives that they want to get done. And I think that uh, that we'll see those start to emerge in the near future. The, the big question is now, does this set up a Biden-Chi summit in the spring? And if so, what do we hope to accomplish there? Jeannie, it's the, the easy question to ask is, are, is this a new Cold War with China? Uh, it's one that I think has you know, been dis- – I don't think you can compare the U.S.-Russia relationship to the U.S.-China relationship. I think that this is, a, this is an economic disentanglement that is going to take a very long time to sort out. Uh, it's, it's almost as if the United States is leaving, leaving a conservatorship, for lack of a better pop culture word, in terms of where things are moving. And it's interesting because this has been coming, and as you and Rick were just talking about, for a long time, and it does feel like we are entering an era where there is bipartisan agreement on how to confront China finally after a long time. But I think Rick's question about the where is the Muslim world on, for instance, the Uyghurs, is the right question to ask, and it brings us full circle to what we were talking about, which is, Keith's answer, which is that the Muslim world has become economically beholden to a certain extent to China. And so can we break that hold, I think, is a really, really big question that looms out there. And not just about this issue with China, but about so much of China's investments in other nations to break our alliances. And higher education institutions, entanglements with China and fashion uh, companies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, just to, to echo that. All right. Let's uh, take a breather from geopolitics, and and I want to read two headlines as we await for President Biden to speak that just crossed the terminal on my Friday. Ready? Um, Governor Andrew Cuomo faces new claims of sexual harassment from a current aide. Again, Governor Andrew Cuomo faces new claims of sexual harassment from a current aide. And a new headline from the Associated Press 
Former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago is now partially closed due to a COVID outbreak. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.